Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well, preparing for whichever solstice is about to happen in your hemisphere. I'm in the north, so that means it is really dark right now. Not like Alaska dark, but still pretty dark. I'd say dark when I go to work and dark when I come home, but my office is my house, so I don't really have to go anywhere to go to work, so it's always... Anyway, today we have what is possibly the most famous of Seneca's tragedies, Medea. And like the rest of Seneca's tragedies that we've covered so far, we don't know much about the time or circumstances under which it was written. Possibly around 50 CE? And this should not be a surprise either. Seneca's primary source material was Euripides. So there's a lot that should sound familiar from the episode in which we covered that earlier work. The cast includes Medea, Jason, and Creon. The unnamed characters are Medea's nurse and a messenger. The children do make an appearance, but they have no lines. No surprise, that's pretty typical. And the chorus consists of the people of Corinth, which is a departure from how Euripides uses the chorus in his version of this tale. The play is set outside the palace in Corinth. I am again working from the Emily Wilson translation. So with this background, sparse though it may be, let's take a short break before seeing what Seneca has to say about Medea. Medea enters and gets right to the point. Jason deserves punishment. Maybe in the form of Medea killing his new wife, his new father-in-law, and maybe the whole royal family. Yeah, less than 20 lines into the play, and we're already to Medea plotting murder. But she doesn't want to kill Jason. He deserves a fate worse than death. She just needs to figure out what that might be. The one thing she knows for certain, she'll leave this marriage the same way she entered it, with murder. And in case you've forgotten what that means, don't worry, she'll get to reminiscing later in the play. The chorus enters and sings an ancient Roman version of going to the chapel or Maybe I'm getting married in the morning. What really matters about the song is that the chorus loves Jason and Creusa, the princess who remains unnamed in the Euripides telling of the story, and the chorus hates Medea. Medea hears them, and you can guess how the song makes her feel. She tells her nurse that she's done some things in her life, some murdery things, that whole deal with chopping her brother up to slow down her father as she helped Jason escape with the Golden Fleece. Then there was that thing with telling Peleus' daughters that she could make him young again, which led to him also being chopped up. Lots of, lots of chopping. But she did it all for Jason. She'd never have done all these murdery things if he'd never come into her life. The nurse counsels her to get out while the getting is good and maybe makes a little mistake by reminding Medea that she is a mother. Creon enters and tells Medea that she is banished, effective immediately. She begs a day to pack and say goodbye. Against his better judgment, he even suggests that this will give her time to take her revenge, Creon agrees to let her stay until the next dawn, but she needs to be gone by the time the sun rises. 
The chorus sings about the danger that comes from the discovery of sailing. Not not just because your boat can get caught in rough seas and maybe sink, but because you can go places by sailing. You can meet barbarians and maybe you can even bring one of them back. One of them who might do a whole bunch of, I don't know, murdery type things. Uh, you know who they're talking about. I mean, sure, they mention Medea by name, so it's kind of obvious. The nurse tries to counsel Medea to stop and take a breath, but there is too much plotting to be done. Jason enters. He pleads with Medea to treat Creon's offer of exile as the gift that he thinks that it is. Medea asks where she's supposed to go. She can't go back to Colchis, a little too much murder there. She can't go back to Iolcus, a little too much murder there. She's already living in exile, and now she's going to be exiled again. She acknowledges that she's done a lot of terrible things that deserve punishment, but that that there isn't a punishment great enough to outweigh all of the things that she's done. She's done some terrible things, and she knows it. But she reminds Jason that she has given up everything for him. Her kingdom, her family, her shame. These things construed her dowry. And when a marriage ends in divorce, the dowry belongs to the woman. So Jason needs to return her dowry. Her lost kingdom, her broken relationship with her father, her dead brother, her virginity. Jason, asked that he is, takes no responsibility for his role in anything that Medea has done. Medea begs that their children accompany her in exile, but Jason refuses, and Medea sees exactly how she can hurt him. Jason exits, and Medea plots. The chorus sings about the dangers of a woman scorned and the curse of the Argonauts. A lot of Argonauts come to, shall we say, sticky ends. The chorus goes into detail on all of them. The nurse enters and describes what Medea has been up to off stage, something along the lines of toil and trouble, doubling and cauldrons bubbling. Great detail if you want to try your hand at ancient murder magic. Medea enters to continue casting her spells on stage. Why tell when you can show and tell? Anyone playing Medea has a lot of lines to learn. She describes the robe that she has infused with poison. She wraps the gift up and gives it to her children, who must have entered at some point in this scene, and instructs them to deliver it to their new stepmother, after which they are to return home quickly so that she can say goodbye. The chorus sings about Medea's furious state, comparing her to a maenad. And if you remember Euripides' The Bacchae, you remember what maenads get up to. Foreshadowing much? A messenger enters and tells the chorus about what happened offstage. He provides all the gory details you might want to know about how Creusa put on the robe, which consumed her, and how Creon tried to save her, leading to the robe consuming him too, and now the whole palace is on fire. Medea fiddles as she watches, which I've just realized is the most fitting joke given the fact that Seneca was Nero's teacher, although this was probably written before Nero purportedly fiddled while watching Rome burn. He didn't. I mean, if anything, it it was a liar, not a fiddle. And there's no proof that he actually did fiddle or 
play the liar while the city burned, although he did happily build himself a magnificent palace on its ashes. But I digress. Medea enjoys the show, and she realizes that she's not quite as angry as she was before, so maybe she shouldn't go through with the rest of her plan. But the Furies who were born from her brother's murder appear to her, and she offers the sacrifice of one of her sons to appease them. She climbs to the roof. Jason enters and sees her on the roof. He he calls for the house to be turned into her funeral pyre, but... But Medea is happy. The sacrifice of her son has purified her, and she can now return to Colchis. But there is one little thing to do before she gets in her dragon chariot and flies away. She will strike that final blow. Jason begs her to spare their second son, but she not only says that she'll kill him, but she'll take care of any other child she might be carrying. She throws the corpses of their children to Jason and flies away. And that is the end of the play. One of the difficulties of these ancient scripts is that they have no stage directions. With the Greek plays, we see that translators frequently will make a stab at entrances and exits based on what we know about, say, the number of actors um, and also what is happening plot-wise. But because of the more literary nature of Seneca's plays, it's not uncommon for translators to skip that step. But we can still see where there have to have been some entrances and exits. So, for example, after Medea and Jason fight, they both must exit because the nurse later enters to tell us about what Medea is doing off stage. But there is no indication of Medea's exit beyond that. And this lack of stage directions can allow for a variety of interpretations because we don't really know who is on stage at any given time. So we don't know how much knowledge each of the characters has. If there is one thing we can say about Seneca's characterization of Medea, though, she is an active participant in her life. She knows what she wants and she sets about getting it even if she has to hurt those she loves and, I suppose, in some ways herself in the process. And we again have to remember that Seneca is trying to teach Stoicism through his plays. Medea is passionate, extremely over-the-top passionate in this version. Jason is not. Not really. He's just kind of there most of the time. He goes with the flow. The problems all stem from the fact that this flow that he goes with is being directed by a woman ruled by her passions and anger. Obi-Wan Kenobi, meet Darth Vader. Except that makes Jason sound too good and Medea too evil. You get the idea. Anyway, because of Seneca's philosophy, we get a Medea who is simultaneously stronger than the Medea of Euripides, but also one who is flatter, not not as three-dimensional. A very interesting note is the last line, which I kind of skipped over in my summary. Okay, I totally skipped over it in my summary. Jason gets the last word in this play. 
As Medea flies off, Jason says, Go through the skies sublime, and in thy flight prove that there are no gods where'er thou goest. Obviously, that would be the Ella Isabel Harris translation, not the Emily Wilson, because Emily Wilson's language is significantly more modern than that. Not in the public domain, however, so I quoted the older <laughs> Harris translation. Prove that there are no gods wherever you go. What does that mean? Does that mean that there are no gods and Medea proves this fact? Or does it mean that wherever Medea goes, religion and faith die? And no, I don't have the answer. <laughs> Interpretation, isn't it fun? From what I've read while putting together this episode, it seems that that first interpretation that this play ends on an atheist note is common, but I can also see how it can be read both ways. Jason's experience of Medea is that she leaves death and destruction in her wake, acts that make it seem to him that there are no gods available to intervene, which is not the same thing as saying that there are no gods. Now, we the audience have seen Medea react to the Furies, who are definitely gods, right? They, they, they are furious women. So is it a conflict, perhaps, between new gods and old? The Furies, you may recall, are very ancient deities, far older than Jupiter and Juno, the gods that Jason would choose to worship and by whom he now clearly feels abandoned, which perhaps was part of Medea's plan all along. So what do you think about this Medea and this Jason, about that last line in the play? About anything else? <laughs> Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can find me on Patreon as triumvirclio. In the next episode, we'll start the second half of the Aeneid with Book 7. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.